here with Eileen Jennings, who is a psychiatrist. She's worked with gifted children and adults in individual psychotherapy for more than 40 years. She graduated from the Yale School of Medicine, completed her residency in child and adult psychiatry at Yale, and she served on the clinical faculty at Yale School of Medicine for a number of years. Well, we have a lot to talk about, and I'm so thrilled that we're going to get a chance to really dive into this issue of looking at child prodigies, children who become geniuses, gifted children. All of this is really your area of expertise. So uh, I'd love to open with your thoughts on what is it like to work with gifted children? What are their unique challenges? You know, a, a gifted child comes to the world with a different brain. And through that brain, they see a different world and the world sees them differently. Their brain is equipped with much greater volume in certain areas, greater connectivity, greater activation. They have much more capacity for memory, for sensory and emotional processing. That's how they see the world. And they don't realize that other people don't see it that way back always. So one of the first things that you notice about gifted children is that they're very curious about how they're different from other people and how other people see what they see. So there's this phenomenon where a lot of parents want their children to be prodigies and they perceive it as a way to ensure, you know, the, the sort of manifestation of genius as that child becomes an adult. Could you speak a little bit about the child prodigy trap? It is a trap. Um, what appears to be a gift can, can be a curse that results in the loss of childhood. And childhood is an extremely important resource in life. Prodigies have a brain that's in many ways quite different from the brain of somebody who will go on to become a genius. Prodigies have brains that um, have exceptional memory, almost obsessional attention to detail, uh, they can use that detail and memory skill to, to develop admirable skills in specific domains. When those skills are encouraged by mentors or parents, when they're met with praise, uh, you know, a praiseful audience, you have a prodigy. Um, but to do that, to perform as a prodigy, to do the things that prodigies do, one has to pretty much sacrifice their childhood. And that's a decision that parents make for their children often. Um, a prodigy doesn't really know that their childhood is theirs to lose, but they lose it in the process of this exceptional uh, quest to, to develop expertise in things that will actually become rather ordinary when they're adults. So they start life with this exceptionality and they end as ordinary. Not always, some go on to genius, some can bloom into genius, but even if they do, they've lost their childhoods, which you know, I kind of want to talk about because I think that's so important. We're interested in the development of genius. We're interested in the nature of genius because we need geniuses. But the habits of prodigy 
are enormously different and almost counter to the products, the, the, um, the habits of genius. A prodigy thrives, a prodigy goes for mimicry, for perfectionistic um, mastery, for uh, getting the right answers to questions that are already known. A genius is quite the opposite. A genius has this curiosity-driven associative thought that goes here, there, and everywhere. Um, there is an independent, almost playful probing of new questions, not old questions. There is a resilience that sees failure as part of that process, where for a prodigy, failure is the end of prodigy. Um, and geniuses, where, where prodigies may have a burning passion for mastery, geniuses have a burning passion for asking and answering questions that are new, that, that, are, that weren't there before. So I, we're, they're very, very different things. Okay, so I wanna go to this idea that Professor Craig Wright has raised in the course on the prodigy bubble versus the prodigy free range barnyard. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the validity of these ideas, bubble versus barnyard, and what encourages that kind of questioning, that opportunity to see what's not there. Child prodigies should definitely be celebrated for their talents and skills. They're extraordinary. Um, but all children should be celebrated for their diverse skills. And to do that, you need to nourish all parts of the child. Every day in a child's development is important. We have to meet the child where they are each and every day and give them what they need that day. And that changes from day to day. There's enormous unevenness in development, um, enormous asynchrony in the brains of particularly gifted children and, and perhaps in, in prodigies. I don't don't know, um, but because of asynchronous development, because of the unevenness of even normal development, we have to give kids what they need every day. And that requires a barnyard, that requires freedom, that requires space, that requires the ability of the, of the child to let you know who they are each and every day. So definitely the barnyard. It makes me think about the sort of culture, at least in the US, the culture that children are raised in, often particularly in middle-class and upper-class families, where there's this very structured day that the child has, where they have practice, and even the rise of the term play dates. They're not just free-ranging and playing, there's a structure around it. Could you speak to how, how has that affected, uh, particularly in your practice, the children that you've seen? Children spend their day trying to figure things out, no matter who they are. They don't know how things work. They don't know what the world is about. So they spend their day exploring this and that, figuring it out. That's how they play. That's how they learn. That's how they talk to people. Why, why, you know, why is this? Why is that? Um, the barnyard gives freedom to explore those questions. 
and discover the answers themselves rather than being obediently studying this or that. There's a, there's a huge trend now in preschools to have outdoor preschools that allow for children to get a little bit hurt, a little bit messed up, a little bit dirty, um, a little bit off the track because they learn so much more from that than sitting in a circle uh, with perfectly straight backs paying attention. Obedience is overvalued. Yes, I think that's a really great insight. And we've seen the success, for example, of the Tiger Mom book and a lot of discussion around that philosophy. I believe Professor Wright even refers to a student of his who was a figure skater and described that from his point of view, his success was 80% talent and 20% hard work. But from his mom's point of view, it was 80% hard work and 20% talent. And it really made me think about the role of parental pressure in the, in the manifestation of genius. I mean, there's something happening in the nexus between the talent and the ability of that talent to be developed through hard work and discipline. The barnyard phenomenon that you're describing, you know, the freedom to explore and create and discover. The parents have to let, their kid, let go of their kids' hands in the barnyard. And that's hard. And I think for a lot of parents, they feel that they do have a very special child and that very special child uh, gets special treatment and should have special accommodations and special opportunities. Um, the problem is that, you know, is that being done for the child or is it being done for the parents? That's an impossible question to answer because parental love is so all-encompassing and so complete that it, you couldn't tease out you know, the, the bits of it. But certainly there is a bit of it that benefits the parents more than the child. Not done maliciously, not done as exploitation, but just done as a, a parental mandate to do the best for your child. So I'm really curious about the kinds of things that we should be doing to support gifted children. And you talked about schools that sort of use the, the natural environment as an engaging playground for, for kids. You talked a bit about the barnyard as being the right environment. What should the tools and resources be for children in those environments? So in the classroom and at home, I think it's very important not to label children as gifted at a very early age, not to call them smart and gifted and wonderful. Uh, we should praise children, all children, but especially gifted children for their imagination, their joy, the fun they had doing it, uh, for their work, their persistence, how they fell down and got up again. Uh, but to praise somebody for their grades is to encourage an identity that can only be lost. You can't keep getting good grades, but you can keep being good and fair and kind. Um, so at home, I think it's very important how we, the identities that we bestow upon our gifted children, 
At school, I think it's important that gifted children have the same access to testing and accommodation services that mainstream students have. Very often, um, kids with, with great frequency, gifted children also have ADD, learning disabilities, autistic spectrum disorders, uh, depression, anxiety, and schools will often refuse testing services or accommodation services to those students because they're doing well enough. So because they're getting good grades, the schools are not, don't have the resources to extend testing and learning disability accommodation or you know, developmental accommodations that they may need. That certainly needs to be addressed in schools as much as gifted programs are good. There are also things that gifted kids don't get in those programs. Outside of home and school, gifted children need space time, freedom, because everything that's extraordinary about their brains requires the kind of playfulness, relaxation, empty space that Dr. Wright talks about in the book as one of the essentials, one of the essentials in the nature of genius. Um, play is extraordinarily important extraordinarily important to children and extraordinarily important in an adult form to geniuses. Play is how children express their feelings, their fears, how they work through conflicts, how they tell their stories, how they ask questions, how they figure out the world. Everything for a child is a question. Play is how they answer a number of those questions. But beyond that, play is a portal to parts of the brain that are nonverbal. Play is a portal to the symbolic parts of the brain, to the unconscious part of the brain, to the, the half thoughts, the things that we relegate out of consciousness to deeper levels of our brain. That's extremely important to children, but it's essential to geniuses because in order to hold a thought in mind, say they're trying to develop something, to hold that thought in mind while exploring all the possibilities of other things around that. One has to be able to do deep dives into your brain, do deep dives into levels of your brain that aren't necessarily speaking out loud to you. And the playfulness that's, that's afforded to a scientist in a lab or a music student you know, in, a, in a rehearsal room or an artist in a, in a gallery, um, that's play, that's their playroom. That's where they can try things and they can fail and they can try again. I think that is such an essential part of genius. And it's something that we need to develop early on in children. This is one reason why prodigies I think suffer. They don't have the opportunity to play in the same way. Um, Imaginative play is passionate. Children play passionately. Geniuses imagine passionately. That passion is not, all, not only because of the structure of their brains, because they have greater connectivity and greater associative areas in the brain. They have much greater 
um, activation of emotional and sensory parts of the brain. But it's also the best way to discover the unknown. It's the best way to figure out what we don't know. You set up a tower of blocks, you smash it down, and then you see what happens when they fall. Children do that, geniuses do that. Now, in one of the articles you've written, you say that the outcome of productive or hidden genius may very well depend on the interplay between nature versus nurture. Professor Wright has focused quite a bit on nature and how the mind of a genius is special and unique. Can you talk a bit about nurture? What kinds of environmental factors support the emergence of genius? I I do believe that the point of this course isn't to tell stories about interesting people in the past who did wonderful things that we now call geniuses. I think the point of this course is that we need geniuses. We need creative solutions. We need innovation. We need to fix things that are broken in ways that we, with technologies and ideas and, and methods that we just simply don't have right now because they're not working. That is something that we all need to address on an individual level or a global level. But certainly throughout history, geniuses have a way of fixing things. Geniuses can catapult evolution. The the ideas that come from, from geniuses and groups of geniuses can lead to remarkable change in a fairly short time. Um, So genius isn't just a nice story. It's essential to human survival. It is the way we adapt to change. It's the way we survive change to be able to develop new technologies, to be able to see art and hear music and feel athletic performance, to be able to know how to care for ourselves and heal others. We need genius solutions to these problems. Um, There's nothing wrong with good memory and being able to answer questions. I just don't think it's what we need right now. For all of the geniuses that, that Dr. Wright talks about in his course, how many are there that we don't know? How many are there that sit in their rooms thinking of wonderful things, but have no ability, time or resource to to produce those things? How many ideas have floundered because there wasn't an audience for it, because there wasn't the opportunity to communicate those ideas in an effective way? Among geniuses, many of them have enormous difficulties with other issues. Genius doesn't exist on its own. It often exists hand in hand with other deficits in social processing, emotional regulation, even disorders like ADD, learning disabilities. Um, In order to really foster and nourish genius, we have to attend to those things too, we need to do the kind of testing and support and treatment and diagnosis that gets things out of their way. We wanna get out of the way of people who might 
be able to have wonderful ideas, world-changing ideas, beautiful ideas, um, compassionate ideas. We need all that. 